The Start On Demand. On demand. The province has changed course on Concordia Hospital. It had planned to close the ER and turn it into a walk-in connected care clinic, but now it will be an urgent care facility. We'll also continue our Lives Changed Forever series today. You'll hear the story of a woman whose best friend died right beside her in a crash. Even though she survived, her injuries and guilt continue to cause her anguish. You'll also hear Greg's personal story about how a serious crash dramatically changed his life forever. And we'll introduce you to a pair of Winnipeggers who have written a book about their adventure that saw them sell their car, rent out their home, pack up the kids, and head out on a year-long journey around the world. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb, who is off today. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And this is the Friday, May 17th, May Long Podcast for The Start. surprising news yesterday about Concordia Hospital. As we've been hearing for about 18 hours now, the Manitoba government has backed off part of its plan to cut emergency room services in Winnipeg. Health Minister Cam Friesen says the emergency room at the Concordia Hospital will be replaced with a 24-hour urgent care centre in the next four to six weeks instead of the walk-in clinic originally planned. An urgent care centre for Concordia Hospital to commence in the coming weeks. We are continuing with plans to transition Seven Oaks to an urgent care centre. Those plans remain on track for September implementation. We are pressing pause for a period of six months on other planned changes to allow healthcare leadership needed time to build better control measures, measures that will further strengthen patient safety, measures that will ensure the stability of the overall system. Urgent care centres are open around the clock, but don't deal with life-threatening issues. Nurses and doctors have said the ER closure would hurt patient care and leave fewer medical backup services for surgeries at Concordia. Darlene Jackson is the president of the Manitoba Nurses Union. She spoke with Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham in the news about yesterday's announcement. She insists this is what nurses have been asking for for quite some time. If the government is listening, I believe they're listening... um uh, they're not listening to nurses. We've been we've been talking for months about the uh, what's really happening in healthcare, what's happening in emergency, about the folly of closing the Concordia Emergency Department, and uh, um, I believe that they are not really listening to nurses. That this is uh, this is uh, there's an ultimate motive here. Darlene Jackson suggesting that perhaps they're listening to David Peachy, doctor, who was in charge of the Peachy report. And Health Minister Cameron Friesen admitted yesterday that the in- original intention and the original iteration of the Peachy report suggested that, yes, the Concordia should be an urgent care center. Uh, he did originally recommend that. Today's announcement to Manitobans was an update. Uh, Manitobans had been made aware that Dr. Peachy was back here to conduct a review to let us know what was going well and what needed additional help. As a result of that work that we've released to Manitobans today, as you say, we have announced an urgent care center for Concordia Hospital. The demographics would suggest, and I think this is where it comes from Peachy to begin with, that the demographics, both from an aging population, a growing population, 
in the Northeast made the case for that urgent care. So you're really just going back and listening to Peachy in the first place. In some respects, we are. As you say, the data continues to reveal that since we started this transformation of our health care system to get better health care sooner for all Manitobans, we've seen a significant rise. Ambulance volumes in Winnipeg up 12%. Patients requiring hospitalization up 11%. The number of Winnipeggers who are 65 and older living in that northeast part of the city is up 8.4%. We think that the evidence underpins the need for a more significant provision of health care in that area. So that begs the question, how was the decision made to transition the Concordia ER to something called a connected care clinic? Reason says the government is willing to listen to people and alter its plans when needed. Well, remember that the whole healing our health care system and the Peachy Report was never about price. It was always about transitioning our health care system that experts for years said was too complex, too siloed, and for years and years got some of the worst results uh, in Canada. So this system has always been about realigning our resources uh, to be able to put the patient at the center, drive down wait times and get better results. That work is underway. Not a not a big cost difference when it comes to uh, running an emergency room or an urgent care center, uh, but more importantly, it's a level of care for that community that will be in place 24-7. We felt that the evidence supported it. This recent review says this is the way to go. We, our message to Manitobans, your government is listening. Darlene Jackson remains concerned about who is having say and also the motives behind this change in course. I would say that we have an election coming. We sat with Dr. Peachy, 17 nurses and I sat with Dr. Peachy and talked about our realities in the healthcare system, um, about how bad it is out there. And the following day, um, Dr. Peachy came out with a a news uh, conference that said uh, he listened to us and uh, nurses support that plan. Uh, If the government is listening, I believe they're listening... um, Uh, They're not listening to nurses. The ultimate reality is that the Concordia ER will close and reopen as an urgent care centre. It's not the Save the Concordia ER that many had been lobbying for, but it is a change of course, and I think something a lot of folks, this is my neck of the woods, Brett, a lot of my neighbours and a lot of my friends in our part of the city are going to be at least uh, somewhat pleased about. Yeah, yeah, the fact that uh, there's going to at least be an urgent care facility in in that part of the city is good because if you're in Transcona, if you're in the Kildonans, you got a long way to go if you need to get to an emergency room or an urgent care. And a walk-in clinic that isn't open 24 hours isn't going to do you any good. I realize St. Boniface isn't necessarily all that far, depending on where you're coming from. Time of day is a big issue Yeah, in the eastern part of the city. You know, I could get to St. Boniface Hospital from where I live in, like, north North Kildonan in a, probably about 11 or 12 minutes in the middle of the night. But during the day... Sometimes it can be half an hour, 45 minutes, and whether or not I hit a train and which route I take. So it's very dependent on traffic, the accessibility to different parts of the city. This is is a good move. Right now, we want to continue our series, Lives Changed Forever. It's a series about car crashes and the lives that are impacted through these tragedies. When you think about a serious car crash... Your mind probably jumps first to the victims, 
But how often do you think about the people who are helping those victims? Global News reporter Diana Foxall explains the trauma first responders deal with. We see things that are um, unimaginable. And, uh, you know, our focus to save lives helps us get through it and allows us to focus on helping that person. Grant Terrien is a flight paramedic working aboard STARS helicopters. He says much of the work he does in Manitoba involves car crashes. Half of our traumatic injuries are the result of car crashes or what we call motor vehicle collisions. And this time of year is when things can get particularly busy. The May long weekend last year we responded to 13 missions. As the team uh, launches uh, towards these types of events, uh, they know that they're expecting um, you know, a devastating crash. Uh, they expect uh, um, the people involved to be critically injured. And so the preparation in the back is we're preparing for the worst. But while Terrien and his team may constantly prepare for situations, that doesn't mean they aren't affected. Bad car crashes uh, have different effects on, on the different responders. And uh, it's really important uh, that we uh, look after our people. Uh, we have peer support teams that uh, touch base with, uh, with, with the crews after they experience uh, a traumatic scene. At the same time, the job can be immensely rewarding. One of the most humbling experiences is when, uh, when a patient who you never expected would have survived uh, the wreckage uh, and they, they contact STARS and walk through our doors. It's, it's absolutely uh, a humbling experience to see them. It touches our staff deeply. Uh, sometimes it offers closure. It reaffirms that the good work that we're doing to see people who can recover from these catastrophic injuries. And, uh, and it's really a, a privilege and an honour to be able to be a part of that. But as it gets busy on the roads heading towards the long weekend, Terrien offers a word of caution. Take the time and take some extra time to get to where you're going. Everybody's excited to get out to the lake or get out to the event or get out camping or, or visiting family. And uh, it's, it's often a mad rush on the highway. Just take the time, arrive safe, arrive alive. We are going to have our fair share of fun today. It is a Friday before a long weekend, but herein lies the quandary for a lot of people, right? Fun often includes alcohol, and all too often that turns into drinking and driving, making poor decisions not only behind the wheel and the decisions to get behind the wheel, but other things, other foolish things that we do when, we're, when we don't have all our faculties about us. Uh, Roy Hildebrand, who lost his daughter, Tia, in a tragedy uh, just a few months ago, shared his story with us yesterday, and, and so many people asking us, why, you know, why would he want to talk about this? Well, because he thinks it's important that we get the message that you have to keep your wits about you in all situations and think about the choices that you're making because it's not just your life that could be affected in a tragedy. It has cascading ramifications and Brett, uh, all too often I use that terminology to uh, get a smile out of you, but I think that's the ideal uh, phrasing because you just don't realize who can be affected when you make a dumb choice or you make a poor decision. Yeah, the average number of fatal crashes a year in Manitoba, 
According to Manitoba Public Insurance, 100 fatalities per year in this province. The average number of injuries a year from crashes, 2,500 per year. Now, in May long weekend, on average, there is at least one fatality and on average about 80 injured yearly on the May long weekend. And when we talk about crashes, we mentioned it earlier, you know, we uh, will mention in our newscasts if someone has died or if someone uh, survived will often say non-life-threatening injuries. Well, when it comes to those non-life-threatening injuries, you might the first reaction might be, okay, good, thank God, nobody died. But what kind of non-life-threatening injuries did they sustain? You know, it, did, could you end up people end up paralyzed, or they end up if they maybe with a horrible broken leg or something to the point where they can't walk again? Uh, imagine a young athlete, uh, rising star, perhaps. You know, like if you've got kids who play hockey and they have aspirations of making it to the pros and they get in a car crash and they survive, but what if they can't play hockey anymore? So the effects of car crashes go way beyond whether or not someone lives or someone dies. Yesterday, we learned about families who have lost loved ones in fatal crashes in the aftermath of one's world changing forever in that respect. But what about those who are involved in a nasty crash but survive? Global's Diana Foxall has joined us live in studio with more. Good morning, Diana. Good morning, Brett. So for the crash victims who do make it out alive, life will never likely be the same either. Dawn Sebesky's story is a little bit of both. She lost her best friend in a crash while the two were en route to a conference in Russell two years ago. She herself was also seriously injured when the truck coming the other way down the 16 plowed into them head on. I remember I looked over to Judy and I said to Judy, I said, that truck looks awfully close to us. Next thing I know, I'm waking up and I look over at Judy and I asked her if we're dead. She didn't answer and I knew I needed to get out of that vehicle because I was talking and she wasn't. While she survived the crash, Dawn's life has been turned upside down entirely since then. She's alive, but physically she's an entirely different person. She's had nine surgeries in those two years, including one to her stomach, where doctors had to put in mesh to rebuild her stomach lining, which was torn in the crash, and many more to fix the long list of internal injuries she suffered in the crash. My whole left side is all new. I've had my pelvis replaced, my acetabular, my tip of my femur, my hip, uh, my hands. Dawn still goes to physio twice a week and she says she's only been out of a wheelchair for just a few months. She hasn't been able to return to work as a nursing assistant and two years on, she still can't sleep through the night. I still have not slept through the night. I don't remember the last time I've slept through the night. As soon as I close my eyes, I get flashbacks of the accident. and Then I just, it freaks me out and then your mind goes crazy. Your mind always wonders like, what could you have done? Because I've seen it all happen. Could I have grabbed the steering wheel? What should I have done? I don't know. Like, could I have saved Judy and I? I you always constantly live with that guilt. And as much as she's tried to continue on as normal after the crash, daily events can trigger a feeling of panic. I'm not so good on uh, one lane traffic. Um, I'm not so good on that. When the cars are coming for me, I'm always wondering, like, is that guy sleeping? Like, are they texting? But Daw knows she's lucky to be alive, even though life as she knew it has been forever changed. I'm thankful I'm here. I'm very thankful my kids have a mom still. 
the guilt that uh, she experiences on top of the, the surgeries and the physical pain, uh, the anguish that she has experienced over the last two years, you know, and this is, this is why this series is important because when we say the words non-life-threatening injuries, we might just brush it off, be like, oh, okay, well, everything's okay. Well, clearly not everything is okay for Don. I've been interacting with many of you on text message uh, in the last uh, 15 minutes or so since I shared my story with you again. And you know, I said to Len, here's, here's part of the problem is that the supports we believe are going to be there unquestioned aren't always there, whether it's income support for long or short-term disability, insurance money to help you, uh, just to help you clean your house, clean your driveway in the wintertime. You have to prove all that stuff, and you're re-victimized over and over again, even when you have physical injuries. So when you imagine uh, throwing in the wild card of mental health issues and brain injury that we still don't know nearly enough about, it's an uphill battle for a lot of folks. Absolutely. And I mean, of course, yes, we hear about the the physical injuries, but that just that's the tip of the iceberg sure. when someone survives a crash, as you say, mental the mental struggle after that, you're lucky to be alive, but perhaps someone else isn't and you know your life is just going to be nothing like it was before. Finances are such a huge part. They contribute to stress, whether you've got a job or not. Put and, yourself in a wheelchair and then realize that you may never, ever be able to do uh, your chosen vocation ever again and that your earning power has been destroyed Potentially forever, the stress, that alone, whether you've had a brain injury or not, the stress of that can create depression. It fractures relationships. It's 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 a, almost an endless cycle, potentially. Global's Diana Fox all joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you very much, Diana. Joe Scarpelli is going to join us after 9 o'clock. He has been doing a lot of work on this series as well. And if you have an experience that you would like to share, if you were in a crash or someone you know, someone you love was in a crash and life has changed forever, feel free to share that experience with us. You can text us at 204-780-6868. You can email brett at cjob.com, and you can email mackling at cjob.com. Here's a text message regarding your story, Greg. Someone saying, I had a very similar experience to Greg. I had an undiagnosed concussion along with whiplash and cervical vertigo. I would vomit on a regular basis and had a crazy memory loss. I still struggle to this day with massive migraines and a constant ache in my shoulder that I can barely stand some days. I was also told that I was exaggerating my injuries and nothing was wrong with me. It's difficult to uh, hear that others have gone through the same thing, but that's that's why I share the story is so A... If you've been down that road, you know you're not alone. And B, maybe give you some permission to, to share your story as well. Thank you for doing that, Nancy. Mackling McGarry, McNabb back Tuesday. Jeff Braun is here. Cameron Poitras, Jeff Fortier. We had a conversation yesterday at the dinner table at Victoria Inn as we were hosting the Grace Hospital Foundation Gala in honor of Pearl McGonigal. And Greg, you sort of told a story about a law firm urban legend in Toronto. <laughs> yes. Uh, I won't say which one of our colleagues 
Lauren McNabb, put salt and pepper on her dinner before she had a single bite. And I said, you know, my grandpa used to tell me about this law firm in Toronto. They would take their prospective hires out for lunch or dinner. And if you salt and peppered your food before you tasted it, you didn't get the job. Why? Well, because it shows that you are prejudging. You're supposed to taste the food to see if it needs any additional what seasoning. What if you just really like pepper and salt? Then <laughs> dump it down your gullet. Sounds like a crappy place to work. Well, anyway, <laughs> I think I think this was has was borrowed from Thomas Edison. Some people ask unusual interview questions. Others use the undercover interview technique. Others check out the condition of your car. If you ask an extremely aggressive, even off-putting question, deciding who to hire is part science, part art, even if you actually are a scientist. Take Thomas Edison. When he interviewed candidates for research assistance pos- assistant positions, he offered them a bowl of soup. Why? He wanted to see whether they would add salt or pepper to the soup before they tasted it. Those who did were automatically ruled out. <laughs> Edison wanted people who didn't make assumptions since assumptions tend assumptionists tend to be innovation killers. Wow, that's interesting. Go. Okay, so then that got us talking about weird things that we might put on food in terms of condiments or seasoning. Now, Jeff Braun, uh, you you like to keep things simple. Correct? I'm the opposite. I don't eat any condiments. or I, And uh, for seasoning, I, I, I like barbecue sauce and Montreal steak spice. And whatever I barbecue, that goes on. Really? Yeah, the same flavor of barbecue sauce and the Montreal steak spice. I don't even care what I'm making. So I do do that, but otherwise uh, I like stuff plain. I put, you know, butter and pepper on my spaghetti. I <laughs> I don't use milk when I make mac and cheese. I think that's, I guess, my thing. That's so Just weird. margarine? Just margarine and the cheese sauce. Me too, buddy. Or cheese powder. You're lactose intolerant, are you not? Yeah. Okay, so that would be a problem, I guess. Putting the, the milk extra, in there? Yeah, but I put the extra butter on there. It's just as bad. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I tend to eat that alone. Well, it makes it well. Not putting the milk in makes it creamier too, right? I yeah, kinda, I don't like that. I like I, it when it's dry. Yeah, when I, if I if I ever make craft uh, dinner, and it's been a long time, but I used to make it all the time. But uh, I would always put less milk than it called for, and uh, I just I don't like it runny. I know that a lot of people would say that's sacrilege, mm-hmm. but I don't I don't like it. Runny. I'm with Braun on that one, and you're like you don't like ketchup either. Nope. What do you put on your burger? Uh, cheese and bacon. And my teeth. <laughs> Matisse. What is that? How does that taste? Is That's that, a good burger. Where's that from? Matisse. Oh, what kind know. of spice is that? It's a East Asian. East Asian. Yeah, it's uh, East Asian spice. What about you? Uh, you know, I, I like all kinds of sauce. Like basically throw anything on there. I, I, I don't care. But like in terms of like salt and pepper, eggs, I'm because uh, you can see if there's salt and pepper on those eggs mm-hmm. immediately. So I, I don't have to taste those. I put salt and pepper on them immediately. And if my girlfriend's making soup, well, I know she didn't put any salt in it, so I'm going to put salt in it myself. So, uh, yeah, what I'm if, not afraid of that. What about uh, steak? What do you put on steak? Because I know some people who put ketchup on steak. Greg's shaking his head right just now. Just barbecue oh. sauce. No, just salt, just salt and pepper. Because if, if it's not good with just salt and pepper, it's not a good steak. Montreal steak spice and maybe some highs. That's it. I don't put barbecue sauce on a steak ever. Never, I ever. I do. Why, why, why? I think it tastes good. All right. I like don't it, like it. I like it when it's even cooked on there. It's different for ribs and chicken and that sort of thing. Yeah, then barbecue sauces, that's what that stuff is for. But like, it's not for steak. Yeah, a little bit of HP or, or just on the side, a little for dipping or something mm-hmm. with the steak, but that's about as far as I'd go. Now, Mackling, you also told a story, I think, about ketchup <laughs> going on a, on a dish that I would not have expected. Yeah, okay, so spaghetti and meat sauce. 
maybe in your lifetime you've encountered someone. Uh, I used to co-own a restaurant in Vernon, B.C. back in the day. It was an Italian restaurant. And uh, in the entire time we were open, there was exactly one person who asked for ketchup for his spaghetti and meat sauce, our chef's father. <laughs> so I was a little worried because that happened on the second day we were open. It's like, that's not a ringing endorsement of this guy's cooking if his dad is asking for ketchup before he's even tried the spaghetti and meat sauce. But maybe it that's was what, just his idiosyncrasy. That's what drove him to be a chef in the first place. Perhaps. Because <laughs> you know, eating weird food all his life growing up, he's like, nah, I got to learn to do this myself. <laughs> Couldn't believe that. So yeah, don't put ketchup on spaghetti and meat sauce. That's sacrilege. So what about uh, you know Cam? You mentioned eggs. You like salt and pepper. Do you like yeah. to, do you like to put anything else on the eggs? No, just just salt and pepper. I mean, most things are if if it's a good quality, whatever it is. If you just put salt and pepper on it, usually it's it's pretty good, right? So I'm I'm game for anything. Like I'm not picky whatsoever. Like I'll I'll eat everything besides like tripe or something. I don't I, I draw the line at like pigs or cow okay, stomach lining. Okay. You know what I mean? You get it? <laughs> but uh, that's where I draw a line. But I'll, I'll, I'll eat anything. But, you know, I, I like to keep things simple, right? Taste the flavor. What What is it? Keep it simple. And if it's good quality food or good quality meat, usually salt and pepper is, is, is all it needs. I was going to say, what I like to do, even with my eggs, I like to uh, take a little ketchup, mix a little uh, hot sauce in there. Boom. Ugh, yeah, I've taken to Frank's hot sauce recently. Uh, even like I put it up, uh, put it on the side, so dip my pizza crust in it. You put that stuff on everything. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I, but I I'll, you, I won't like dump it on stuff. Like I'll put it on the side so that because I like Cam, I like to enjoy the, the flavor of whatever I have, and then maybe I'll I'll try it with different sauces. But I generally don't add salt or pepper on anything. And craft uh, dinner as well. That can be an entirely different conversation. The stuff. I was at a party once and they were talking about craft dinner and the whole place erupted with the different things they put in craft dinner. Like, no, you gotta put dill in the craft dinner. <laughs> dill? Yeah. <laughs> That's getting a little too like well, it doesn't need herbs, does it? Uh, I don't <laughs> maybe, know. Maybe it does. Don't, don't you usually eat it after the herb? <laughs> <laughs> The headline at cjob.com has to do with speed limits and the question of the day at cjob.com, which is brought to you by Credit Aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. Question of the day, do you think speed limits should be lowered to protect pedestrians? Depends on the area. Wins the day at 55%. So far wins the day. 32% say no way, 12% say absolutely. You can cast a vote at cjob.com. And that headline reads, Councillor suggests exploring reduced speed limits on Winnipeg residential streets. And this came from St. Norbert St. River Councillor Marcus Chambers, who spoke with the news yesterday. You heard that in Jeff Braun's newscast. They spoke with Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham. And now we wanted to get some reaction, Greg. City Councillor Sean Nason of Transcona joins us now, thus the Transcona connection. Sean, uh, Thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning. I know you're uh, fairly passionate about this as well. What's, what's your view on reducing speed limits uh, in residential areas? And I know you also have a take on what should be done in school zones. Well, obviously, we, we can see time and time. And thanks for having me on, by the way. We can see time and time again that uh, fines are not the solution. Uh, people just aren't slowing down in areas where children are present. In our neighborhoods where, you know, kids are playing on the streets, uh, you know, people are just going too darn fast. 
You know, uh, uh, Sean, a lot of people see this as a tax grab when when certain individuals and, and city councillors are, are, are talking potentially about, about yeah. raising the fines involved. And so that that's going to be the direct correlation for a lot of people. And that's going to be yeah. the sole, sole reason for these changes in a lot of people's mind. Con- convince us otherwise. Uh, you know what? I would far prefer to get rid of the photo radar vans at the uh, in those areas at 30 kilometer an hour or, or playground zones and actually have police sitting there. Pull your butt over. You'll figure it out pretty darn quick that you don't want to do that. Uh, you don't get you don't get the merits when you get a photo radar ticket. That's the big. That's one of the big factors there. So this can This was debated in council. Yesterday, so the word debate implies that there were some on the other side of this. So what were the, those in disagreement saying, or perhaps maybe not necessarily in support? Actually, it wasn't much. It wasn't really a debate. It was, it was where are we at? Uh, what, you know, looking at what Vancouver's recently done and Edmonton's uh, gone forward with, it, is it time to look at what we're doing in Winnipeg? It is one of the biggest things I've heard since since being elected is neighborhood speed. And that's on residential streets. Not the not the collector roads that are getting you, you know, transiting out of the community, but in your neighborhoods where you put your head down, where your kids go out and play basketball at the end of the street and people are driving by at fifty kilometers, you know, fifty kilometers would be good. Uh but a lot of times I've seen people go by my house at way higher speeds than that. And we've just got to slow down in our neighborhoods. And it's it's a shift. You know, and I always try to wrap my head around the idea that it's 50 kilometers per hour to drive on Corridon, let's say. Uh, divided roadway, two lanes in each direction. There's some parking in some spots. But that's 50 it's also legal for somebody to go go ripping around my bay at that exact same speed. It it just the correlation there drives me bonkers because as you say, my kids play basketball or street hockey in the end of the road. Uh, we don't have sidewalks in our neighborhood, so my kids are walking on the road from their friends' houses and homes. So there's a whole different dynamic here, but it's perfectly legal for someone to rip down my street at 50k. Yeah, and I, and I think that's the biggest where people are, are seeing this with, with, you know, mirrored glasses that, that, that they're not seeing that the larger challenge that we have in many of our communities, some people are throwing out that, well, you need more places for them to play street hockey. They shouldn't be on the road. I, you know, I understand that, but you know, pe- people have played street hockey and, and basketball at the end of their streets. It's part of, part of our DNA and our life as our, as our driving in our vehicles. We just need to slow down where people are are congregated and have a little bit more respect. And you know, maybe it's you know more enforcement on residential, but it's it's got to be police and not these photo radar vans. Eight pedestrians have been killed on Winnipeg streets so far this year. That is one of the reasons why we have been doing our Lives Changed Forever series for these last couple of days. Now, you referenced Edmonton, Sean. Edmonton City Council recently moved a motion that would see 50 kilometer an hour speed limits reduced in residential areas. Vancouver City Council has unanimously voted unanimously voted to test lowering speed limits on residential streets from 50 to 30. So where are we at in Winnipeg? You said that the question was asked, where are we at? So we'll ask you, what's next? Well, I'm going to I'm gonna work with the city clerk's office to craft, craft motions at community committee just to advance the dialogue so we can find out what what is the best route forward. 
you know, it may be a, a matter that, you know, maybe, you know, down the road, we, we take a look at these photo radar vans and, you know, see if they are in fact changing the curve and, and mentalities. Yeah. We, we see people ripping past, uh school buses that are stopped as well with uh, zero regard for the law. So uh, I think there's a huge conversation to be had here. Councillor Nason, before we let you go, your reaction to the news yesterday that the Concordia ER will close, but it will be reopened as an urgent care centre. Uh, good news in your mind for your part of the city, a good compromise here? I, I think it's the best of best of solutions that we could see that the the connect care wasn't the best idea i like the idea of having having an urgent care i, I used to visit miser misericordia when uh, i'd have an unfortunate situation every once in a while you know in the city we we do have uh very good care relative to the rural communities and i think we have to keep that in mind when we're having that conversation on health we are we are well served within the city of winnipeg Transcona Councillor Sean Nason joining us live on 680 CJOB. Councillor, thank you very much for this. Thank you for having me on, guys. The series is called Lives Changed Forever. We've been talking today and yesterday about how people are impacted by car crashes, not just the victims, but the loved ones. And Greg, you have shared this story before. It's a very personal story. You were in a really bad crash. How many years ago has it been now? 19 years ago and about two weeks from now in southwest Calgary. I was on my my way out uh, from one event and, and going to another, sitting at a red light, minding my own business when a young woman hit me uh, at at least... 80 kilometers per hour. I was at a dead stop. Uh, She was ticketed for dangerous driving and speeding, so I suspect it could have been closer to 90 or maybe even 100 kilometers per hour. That really doesn't matter. The actions of this other person obviously affected my life uh, long term, and I would argue that it's had permanent, a permanent effect on me, who I am, not only uh, the physical injuries and the physical Issues I still deal with. I, I battle headaches all the time. I um, deal with depression that was uh, absolutely triggered by this event, continue to do so. But at the very same time, it ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me. It's sort of ironic. But when I talk about this, I always like to to preface it by saying, I understand, and I'm going to do what McNabb did yesterday, I understand there are people that have been through much worse than I have. I also understand that there are folks out there that won't really get a genuine sense of what I've been through as as hard as I try to articulate it. I had a a psychiatrist tell me when I was uh, battling the, the darkest of my days, tell me, that somehow, some way, this would end up being the best thing that ever happened to me. And I'd like to say that eventually that was the case. But in the meantime, uh, the person I was changed dramatically. My personality changed. My ability to do my job almost completely disappeared. My ability to have civil conversation with certain people changed. And so... When we realize how much we're learning about the brain, it's sort of the last frontier of health. And so my situation, much like many folks who have been through similar situations, you had or have medical practitioners that don't always understand the effect of brain injury 
on depression and vice versa. We have a situation where we don't understand concussion and the effects that it can have. One of the first questions I was asked at every single point, every single interview with either a new doctor, a new line of questioning, because this became a court case, of course. I lived in Alberta, private insurance. It was long. It was drawn out. And at every turn, I felt like I had done something wrong, that I was made to feel as though I was playing the system. They use a terminology, it's called malingering. And essentially, doctors, lawyers on the, quote, other side had zero problem looking me in the eye and suggesting that I was lying about what I was going through. And I said this to Loren, and I think you were in the room as well, Brett. For folks that go through life-altering car crash where their bodies have been injured, their brains have been injured, the combination, we often get accused of making things sound worse than they are. And I would argue that most people do the exact opposite, that they're less than honest about the genuine pain that they're in emotionally and physically. And so when I share my story, there are lots of aspects to it. If you're out there and you're dealing with a situation where you're not sure whether or not what you're dealing with is genuine or not, you know. You know if it's genuine. You know if it's real. And uh, my only advice uh, is to never stop standing up for yourself because your today doesn't have to be your forever. Greg, uh, we often, McNabb and I often make jokes, uh, you know, we're, and it's mostly out of jealousy because you, your memory is like a steel trap. And I often wonder if you have an eidetic memory. I think that's the term, right? Eidetic memory. Uh, but is it, or should I say had, like has, how did the crash affect your memory? Well, you've been working with me for, well, 10 years now, but shoulder to shoulder for almost three. Yeah. And there are certain things that I can recall instantly but like Sam, I, I you you, you, re, you recall a, a Sammy Hagar loss uh, is the last what's it, the, the the place in Mexico that you went to Cabo San Lucas Cabo San Lucas Cabo Wabo Cabo Wabo yeah different different scenarios um, that I have zero problem recalling but we had gentlemen in our studio yesterday it had a huge impact on me Ray Hildebrand I had to ask his name this morning and I know that's not unusual. I get that's not unusual when you're almost 50. I get that. But this started immediately after my accident. When you're used to being able to remember everything. I used to be a waiter. I could take an order from 22 people and go around the table. A big top, we would call it. Yeah. I didn't have to write it down. That, is, that Then you must have a photographic memory, as they say, or an eidetic I memory. would get a little bit stuck sometimes, and I just have to look at the person who's order. I go, oh, yeah, they wanted a steak with peppercorn sauce, and then I would get it. Very, very rarely did I make a mistake. So uh, as I told Char Charles Adler once upon a time, he was in the seat you're in. I was in the seat I'm in right now, that I had to at one point— and it was about four or five years ago, I had to mourn the person that I was so that I could move on and understand that I was never going to be that same person again. And that's part of the challenge that so many folks face that, that battle a brain injury, that the person that they were may not ever return. And wrapping your 
your brain around that is incredibly difficult. And so when we talk about the long-lasting effects of a non-fatal automobile crash, um, that's something that thousands of people deal with. And they also deal with lawyers, family members, and insurance companies telling them that they're lying about what they're dealing with. Greg, thank you very much for sharing that story. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb back on Tuesday. And one of the things that Mackling and McGarry and McNabb have been doing now for a couple of years is shining a light on young entrepreneurs in our community. And I love talking about golf, and I found a way to tie the two together here, Greg. That's brilliant, uh, just like you. Because uh, on Instagram, I was looking at this. It just popped up on one of my friends, uh, Paige Zapperzan, who is a friend of this radio station. She's a fitness coach and a life coach, and she was wearing the this golf apparel. She was modeling for it, and I asked her about it, and she says, well, you got to talk to, I believe, is Joshua Zapperzan is on the line. Is Paige your sister, Joshua? Yes, Paige is. Well, okay, so she says, you got to talk to my brother Joshua. He is the CEO and owner of Long Ball Athletics. It's a company based right here in Manitoba, and I am wearing one of the hats right now. You can see a picture of it on our 680 CJOB Instagram. And Joshua, Long Ball to the rescue. I needed a new golf hat, and at the Golf Expo, I found some Long Ball hats, and they I got a great deal on them, and they are amazing. So thanks for joining us today. The first of all, I guess I should start with the fact that long ball did not originate in Manitoba. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. First of all, thanks for having me. I uh, appreciate it. But uh, yeah, long ball originated out in Alberta, actually, with uh, a couple of buddies that were recently out of university and looking for a way to give back to one of their longtime friends who was trying to turn pro. So they decided to start a clothing company. They saw a need in the market for a trendy, young, fun brand, and so Longball was created. So this was an attempt to um, to support his road to the PGA, so to speak, Joshua? Uh, yes, exactly it, exactly it. Yeah, because sometimes you hear about syndicates ba- backing uh, prospective pros where groups of people will get behind them and they will invest in a golfer. They'll put a certain amount of money in and then when they when that golfer starts m- making money, they, they get their money back. It doesn't always work out. So how did you get involved? I was approached about uh, four years ago now to become the Manitoba representative for the company just through a mutual contact. And just from, I've been in the golf industry for a little bit, working up at the Clear Lake Golf Course, and golf has been a huge passion of mine and thought it was a perfect complement to my entrepreneur and, and business degree. So I, I took a, a jump at the, the role as the Manitoba representative, and then things just went from there. And about a year ago, I was approached with the opportunity to take on a larger role at the organization, and uh, here we are today. So you work at the Clear Lake Golf Course Restaurant, but you also run this business? Yeah, yeah. so I worked at the, uh, the Clear Lake Golf Course for 10 years, actually, growing up. We had a family cottage, or we, we do have a family cottage up at Clear Lake. So golf, that was kind of my second home and, and got to know a lot about the golf industry by working in the pro shop there and uh, spending my time there. And, and now I've, uh, I've taken over the restaurant at the golf course as well, running that. So I get... Uh, a little bit of the restaurant industry and uh, the apparel industry. Oh, boy, oh, boy. I'd love to meet you face-to-face one time, uh, Joshua. We have uh, maybe some stories to swap. I love your apparel. It's absolutely gorgeous, and the names are very Manitoba-centric. Not all of them. Golden Boy, 
peg uh, hats, but you've got Bay of Funday and uh, PEI socks. You've got Riding Mountain hat, Forks hat. But uh, I do have a bone to pick with you. All right, let's hear it. And you're calling it a beanie, the LB, <laughs> lifestyle beanie. That's a toque, my friend. Why are you shying away from using the real word? Are you trying? Are you trying to appeal to Americans? No, I don't know where that one came from. Um, yeah, I, I don't have a good answer for you on that one. That was uh, maybe a little bit of a lack of creativity, maybe. But uh, no, we just we just like the name Beanie. So, how's the business doing? Business is going well. We're we're excited for the summer and, and getting ramped up for the golf season here. Things are things are going well. We're in a number of pro shops in in the area and um, online, obviously, as, as you've kind of mentioned. But uh, yeah, things are going well. We're really excited about the, our new line, our apparel, and um, we've got some phenomenal reviews already on all the gear this year. And we're excited for the summer. And are you getting orders? Sorry, Greg, are you getting anybody ordering your stuff from outside of Manitoba? Yes, we uh, we have orders that come in, especially through our online platform from all over North America, a few in the States and across Canada. So we uh, we have some decent represent- representation um, across the country for sure. Yeah, the cal- color palette of your stuff and the choices are outstanding right up my alley. But in terms of comfort and wear on the golf course, what, what makes your stuff uh, different than, than something I might purchase elsewhere? It's really comfortable and breathable, and that's the number one thing when we're sitting down and, and building our gear from a fabric perspective. It's really about the fit, the comfort, and the feel, and not only when you're on the golf course, but our, our kind of our whole model and philosophy is that we want to build apparel and merchandise that someone can wear from the office to the golf course and to the 19th hole afterwards. So that's really our whole concept when in design apparel. And it, that stems from the fabric, the feel and, and the performance of, uh, of all the apparel. Joshua Zapperzan, CEO and co-owner of Long Ball Athletics. I can tell you the hats are great. The the shirts look awesome. There's a you even got a fancy looking golf bag. So great stuff. I'm looking forward to seeing what else you guys come up with. Perfect. I appreciate it. Next guests. They had quite the adventure. In 2015, Rob Kraus and Daria. Salomon, did I pronounce your name correctly, Daria? You bet. They they sold their car, rented out their Winnipeg home, and packed up their two young children to embark on a 12-month journey around the world. So they've written a book, Don't Try This at Home, One Family's Misadventures Around the World. We actually have two copies that we're going to give away at the end. And it's an interesting book because... It's a dual retelling. So you look at it one way and then you flip it around upside down and it's Rob's perspective in one and Daria's in the other. So Rob Kraus and Daria Salomon, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. So you had the launch yesterday at McNally Robinson. We did. How'd that go? It was great. Yeah, it was really fun. It was packed. Um, People seem really intrigued by this idea of uh, packing up life and hitting the road for a year. Mm -hmm. It always sounds like a great idea at the time. We can do it all Until over you again. Do it. You know, we can we can have nice, calm conversation, and, you, and we'll ask you about your adventures. But I want to get to brass taxes. Would you do it again? Yes. 
Yes, we yeah. would. Daria, <laughs> you, you, you yeah, no, She was looking at me as if I was the one. I thought Rob might say no, because, uh, of course, now that we're back, we would do it again. When we were on the trip, there was a lot of moments where uh, not only would we not do it again, we might have just thrown in the towel and come home at some points because yeah. things went so awry. But, no, now, now, um, you know, thinking back on the journey, it was pretty phenomenal. So no, you, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, you pulled the trigger in 2015. But how long was this ruminating? How long was this gestating in your the back of your mind? Uh, that would probably be dark. Like I mean, you were thinking about it for quite some time. Hey, like I Years. mean, yeah, right. I was not thinking about it at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell, tell us. I always love to uh, surprise. I love to ask musicians and comedians. Uh, what was your mom's reaction when you told them that this is what you want to do with your life? When Daria finally came clean, or when she. Uh, told you that this is what had been going on in her mind for some time. Can, can you walk us uh, through that? Do you remember the moment when she kind of put it out on the table? Yeah, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't like a, because she talked about it, or, you know, we need to switch things up a little bit, and it's like, yeah, 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 we'll switch it up, no worries, like, we'll get there, right? And then <laughs> she had put in for a, a leave of absence with work, and then... We thought, forgot about it because that went in like in February, or I forgot about it. I sort of like, oh, yeah, yeah whatever. And I'm then, obsessed yeah, about it. And then in May, it's like, okay, I got the leave. We can go. It's like, what? <laughs> go where? We're going to Riding Mountain for the weekend? Where are we going? Great. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a bit like, I mean, I was always in. I just, it's, it really is like just that, that moment that, that, that before you go on the trip that is so daunting, right? That you don't know what to, you don't know what's going to happen and you don't know because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how hard it's going to be or how easy it's going to be. You don't know anything about it. That's what freaks you out the most. Right. So that once we started getting into the routine and I started thinking about like, okay, we got to get this done. We got to get this done. It sort of, it all just started flowing a little bit. Right. So, so you had to sell your car, you rented out your home. Can we ask you how much money did it take to go on a 12 month journey around the globe? Sure. Um, we we had a budget that we tried to stick to, which was $150 a day, kind of everything included, <clears throat> excuse me, except flights. Um, but that's, you know, you think about accommodations, food, excursion, like that's that's not a lot of money. So it was a pretty- That's for four people. That's, that's for, four, for people. four people. Yeah. And coffee and alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm guessing you probably needed a we, lot of the second. Two, yeah, so we have two children. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is, is getting is good correct. now. This is getting and my good son, now. my son had this. Uh, we thought, oh, it'd be good. Put him in charge of budgeting, and so we put this little expense tracker on his iPad, and then. He's looking at it and he's looking at my coffee, and we're in New Zealand, and the coffee's like eight dollars, and right, and so I'm on my second one, so that's sixteen dollars of our hundred fifty dollar a day budget. And he's like, "Mom, I don't see this in the budget." It's like, delete, take that expense tracker off that kid's iPad. Oh, oh, that was the approach: take the expense tracker off, yeah. not uh, change your ways. So, where did you go? Where was your first uh, destination? And and give us an idea of, of where you went. Yeah, we started in New Zealand, and uh, in order, as you ask about budgeting, we camped for two months in a tent in New Zealand. Uh, so that was uh, challenging for some of us, less challenging for Rob probably. <laughs> guy, no guy, could, guy could live in a tent. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, and then we headed into uh, the South Pacific. We went to Fiji and Samoa. We tried to hit some places that were less, uh, you know, touristy or less common, so that that's what brought us to Samoa. And um, when we went to South America, we went to um, places like Bolivia and Colombia, um, yeah, Rob. Yeah, we, so after Fiji up through Asia, 
uh, Indonesia, Bali, and then uh, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand. And then we actually had to come home for a short stretch. And then we went down to South, uh, South America and did Peru, Bolivia, Ecuador. Did the Galapagos Islands, which were amazing. Mm-hmm. And then um, finished in Colombia. How and, old were your kids at the time? Five and eight. Well, five and eight. Yeah. Now, I, now I can understand the need for the alcohol. The alcohol yeah. consumption. The yes. five-year-old was a difficult traveler. <laughs> Rob's just putting his head down right now. <laughs> how, did, how did the five-year-old do in a tent? Well, even an eight-year-old did be two months in a tent. You know, the, the tenting wasn't so much an issue for them because we, before this trip, like this, what sort of precipitated it is was we would always go on these extended trips, camping trips. We did California for, for four weeks or five weeks. We did the East Coast for four or five weeks and we tented primarily, right? And so the kids love being camp, like love being in a tent, love camping. And so that was sort of what had the idea of let's go to New Zealand first because it's a very camp culture you know, and it's it's like Canada just squeezed into this really tiny area. And so we thought that would be a good introduction for the kids to get used to the idea of like we're gonna be on the road for a while and and I, I think it was I think it was good, you know, like I mean I, I think you <laughs> you could have done without less I, less nylon, maybe. Yeah, I thought <laughs> more we'd walls. like stay in hotels and break it up with a little camping, and then we got there. It's like, oh, it's oh, all script a little bit. He's <laughs> booked like two full months of camping. So, and I find in a campground, kids can play and run around and you know get spiders in their hair and whatnot. And um, when you're in a hotel, I don't know our our, our tends our kids tend to go a little stir crazy and break things. Well, it's and, sanitized, right? It's it's not a genuine experience. No, yeah. right? There's hotels everywhere, and you know our son would just like fill up his backpack with everything from the hotel that wasn't bolted down. It was really funny. <laughs> so I, I I went to uh, British Columbia, Banff, etc. with my kids on a road trip a few years ago, and we were you know passing through Canmore, and I kept look at the mountains, look at the mountains. Come on, guys, look at the mountains. <laughs> yeah, Dad, boom. And you can see in the rearview mirror, they're reading their book. or they're. Yeah. It's like, are you not taking this in? It's so beautiful. <laughs> How many times did you get frustrated with the fact that the kids were like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Can we look at something else now? Or, yeah, or, or did they soak it in? I think, like, I mean, I, I you know, I think we get that more here. Uh, one, the, the travel, the, the, the travel distances were a lot less when we were in New Zealand or when we're traveling around in other places. No 12 hour drives. In no, New right. Like, I mean, yeah, you're not, and 12 hours through the prairies, right. Where it's just like, Oh my goodness. There's um, a gopher. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and also it was different, right? Like, I mean, you'd get, it's like, okay, we're getting on a, on a, on a ferry in Bolivia that, you know, the ferry is the size of the bus. It literally, it looks like a cracker. And the bus is doing this on the ferry, uh, tilting back and forth in these, you know, not high waves, but high enough to sway it. And so for them, it was always just like, wow, what's, you know, what, what's going to go wrong this trip, right? So they were, they were quite excited about actually, you know, paying attention to see. And there was just so much different stuff that they're always being exposed to that, that they had never they'd never seen before and the environment, right? Like I mean, going through jungles or whatever. Right. So in terms of preparing for a trip like this, like did you have to, to get a bunch of shots to go to these various countries? Lots of alcohol. 
<laughs> I like where you're at in terms of shots, but I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. That's so that. true. Yes, we uh, we did. We had to get a bunch of shots, and you know, we went to the travel health nurse, and she just looked perplexed about why we would go to these places as she was sort of looking up all the shots that we would need, and and so we asked her, you know, what, like where where have you, where do you go? Where have you been? And she's like, oh, I don't travel. Oh, so we thought that was bizarre advice yeah. from the travel nurse. But uh, yeah, we, we did a lot of shots. It was funny when we came back, though, when we went to Disney, our kids were so used to just having to take malaria meds and shots and whatnot. And my, my uh, son asked what shots we would need before we went to Disney. <laughs> just dad. Just yeah. dad needs shots yeah. at that point in time. So uh, have you spoiled the kids? Are they expecting this sort of adventure every few years now? Or are they grateful for the experience? Uh, what's, what's the feedback been from the little ones? Uh, you know, they, I think it's sort of raised their, I don't know if it's raised their expectations because they're, they're actually, I think what it did, it did the exact opposite where it grounded them a little bit, right? Where they are like, they saw a lot of different things, a lot of different, uh, you know, cultures and, and ways people are living. And so they're, I think they're really appreciative, appreciative of, of everything that they, that they have. And so they are just, I think what it's done though is made them adventure buffs in some capacity right so they're always you know when we went you know to disney um they liked it but we were like oh this is gonna be great you guys and they were and so you know i think six months after we had gone to disney we're like what's what's been your favorite trip and disney did not register it was like galapagos or new zealand hiking this hike or doing this you know you know last year we went to uh yosemite and hiked half dome right and and that that was a big experience for them, and they both love that. And so, yeah, it's it's they just have become these junkies, right? So it'll be interesting to see what happens as they get older, right? Because then it'll be like, oh, skydiving, really? Uh, okay, great. <laughs> so, yeah, they seem to really uh, gravitate toward experiences that are earned, as opposed to just you know show up and go on a ride. Um, they they seem to get really get off from hiking a mountain. Yeah, weirdly, I, I actually was the one who loved Disney World the most. Yeah. <laughs> Disney World's great. You can get him out of the princess ride. <laughs> Disney is the happiest place on earth. Uh, they back that up, in my opinion. The book is called Don't Try This at Home, One Family's Misadventures Around the World from Winnipeg's own Rob Kraus and Daria Salomon. And it's a dual retelling. So half of it is from Rob's perspective and half of it is from Daria's perspective. So that is an interesting experiment. Hey, thanks for listening to the Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.